Yeah, that's right. Just just keep it right up there heavy. I don't want them to hear me all the way over there in New Jersey. The world is waiting. Bring it up. They are prepared. Are you already in there, dear, too? You're okay now? Ah, I know you can't read my... What kind of mind you speak? None of us can read anybody else's. You know what kind of mind. All right, bring it up. Someday you'll learn not to yell at the wrong time. All right, there we go. I was waiting by the park one day. In the merry, merry month of May. I was taken by surprise by a pair of roguish eyes while I was walking through the park one day. It's enough there. Hold it. Hold it. Just keep that in the pants there. This is me. I'm here. After a few brief moments of, of uh, confusion, we're back in business. You know, speaking of uh, being back in business, um, I was planning a great role reversal show here tonight, and uh, I'm compiling another folio on that problem, which uh, is getting thicker by the minute. That is, the folio problem's already pretty big, and uh, we're... <laughs> we're uh, Instead, uh, going to do something else here, if I can find it. Oh, yes, here we are. Here we are. I don't know whether I ever told you the story. You know, uh, I've been walking around here for a long time cursing the powers that be. And, uh, hello, do you like, do you like that crackling? I'm doing that purposely. That's all part of the pop art world. Uh, it's very important that you make people aware of the backstage world. See, they say, here, I can hear him. He's got his script there now. I can hear it. That's my script here. That's the Sears Roebuck Summer Catalog. That's my script. I had one lady write me a very angry letter. She says, I know where you get all your stuff. It's from the dictionary. Literally, she was very serious. She says, I know what you do. You just take a lot of words out of the dictionary and you put them together and you come up with this rotten script. It's funny, that's what Melville did, too. It's curious. Well... Uh, but uh, <laughs> while on the subject of, uh, of what what is the rottenness, that hey, has it ever occurred to you that uh, that uh, seriously though uh, that uh, that the problem of making it is one of the major problems in our time, and it is rarely discussed in honest terms. Uh, now this is a program based on making it. Now it it doesn't it doesn't matter what you want to make. Uh, there's a lot of things you can make, and uh, you can interpret that any way you want, that this is a major problem in our time. And people are concerned with it 97% of the day by actual IBM analyses. 97% of all waking hours, man is spent mulling over, in one form or another, that single thing, making it. And uh, now, <laughs> now it can be, it can be uh, the secretary pool, it can be, uh, you know, making it, just making it, going all the way. Uh, it's it's uh, what could be called, really, in a sense, the uh, the marquee uh, symptom of our society. That everyone has a secret, unbelievable desire to see his name on some kind of a marquee uh, with lights behind it. Uh, that guys who, who rent desks for a living and water coolers have now begun to back shows because somehow they want to be in showbiz. 
and this is a form of kind of making it by osmosis. Now, a lot of us just don't even know there's anything to be made. This is where the problem comes in. <laughs> it really is. If I had learned at the age of 10 that the world is to make it, no telling where I'd be. As a matter of fact, I knew kids, uh, I knew I know, at least a half dozen guys I've met in this town, who by the time they were 12 were running hard. Uh, they hit the ground. In fact, I know one guy who, uh, the moment he was, uh, he, he was spawned, his mother later reported that he hit the ground running and panting heavily. And he was on the phone 30 seconds later, and 20 minutes later was having a very important conference at MCA. And he wasn't over two and a half years old when he was already being seriously considered in top vice presidential circles. Now, uh, <laughs> oh yeah, oh, this is all private. Now, 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 why aren't you making it? You know, the, how much junk mail do you get a week that's based on that, that concept? Uh, I get at least four and a half pounds of mail a week, says, dear, where they ever get this idea, uh, dear junior executive. Somehow I got on a junior executive mailing list someplace along the line in a feckless moment of unreality. It goes back to the day. Did I ever tell you about the time I once managed a radio station? And since that time, I've been on all kinds of... Ma of course, I was 12 at the time. And I have been on mailing lists ever since that time. It says, Dear Executive, uh, have you wondered how to get the most out of your men? Have you wondered how to actually, actually wring that blood out of a turnip that for years people have been saying ain't possible to get? Well, it is. Now... Uh, our new book called You Can Get Blood Out of a Turnip will guarantee <laughs> you've got any turnips working for you. You can get the marrow out of their bones if you want it. And here it is. Uh, this side of the, well, I throw that one away, you see, because I figure, well, I'm not a junior executive and uh, my only single employee me under control. So I'm never going to get any, any blood out of that turnip. In fact, it's going to be the other way around. This is where the blood comes from. Guess who? So I threw that one out. Then there's the one that comes in and says, Have you, it says, uh, dear citizen, uh, have you envied people in your acquaintanceship who are dynamic and who apparently can have other people listen to them at will? Would you like to have a conversational gambit always on the tip of your tongue? Would you like to be one of the listened to instead of one of the listeners? Well, well, obviously that's ridiculous. I threw that one aside. Anybody who's working on WOR is not going to be one of the listened to. So I threw that out immediately. And that here, though, is one for the first time has come in the mail that makes sense and explains a heck of a lot to me. Would you please bring my sinister music on, please? Sinister music, please. Oh, here it comes. At long last, they're beginning to get right down to the basics where it works. I got this in the mail today, and I could not put it down for over 13 milliseconds. Bring it up. Do you mind if I use... Oh, there it is. Yeah, hold it, hold it, hold it, hold it. This is my mysterious music. Do you mind if I use my official voice? Uh, bring it up. Official voice. Hello, hello. One, two, three. Time marches on. Very good. The heading of this piece of junk mail begins. Now, call upon these mighty beings from the invisible world around you and instantly begin a wonderful new life of wealth, love, happiness, and complete power. Here is proof positive that you, yes, you, possess amazing psychic powers that will bring you anything your heart desires. 
And here is the secret of releasing and harnessing these fantastic powers. I read that, boy, and I'll tell you, I closed the door immediately. I cut off my phone. I put the wastebasket up next to the transom so no one could look in and see that I was unlocking the secrets of the Orient and settled back to find out where along the line had I loused up. Dear friend, all around you, at this very instant, is a vast invisible world pulsing with power. You cannot see, hear, feel, taste, or smell this world, but if you could tap its power right now, all of your dreams would come true. All of your problems would melt away. All of your desires would be fulfilled instantly. Oh! Holy smokes. I scrunched down in my revolving chair. That $7 revolving chair that they bought for me from Sears Roebuck. The one with the chartreuse plastic cover. I scrunched down and I could hear the sound of my air conditioning humming in the distance. I could hear the sound of Bob Leader pacing the floor above me, and I knew that revenge was within my grasp. <laughs> what is it, this power? The next paragraph said it. For the inhabitants of this invisible world around you are real, and they will bring you anything. We repeat anything you want out of life if you only ask them for it in the right way. Yes, whether you want large sums of money, glowing good health, dozens of devoted friends, followers, mistresses, a more satisfying love life, or anything else, the dwellers in the unseen world will help you get them. You need only whisper your wishes to your servants in the invisible world, and they will come true. With their help, you will live a life piled high with golden riches, with the luxurious possessions, the personal honors, all else you have longed for. For lo, these many years, impossible perhaps, oh, not so, you will discover in the pages of this book a mysterious species of invisible animals that talk with human intelligence. The doctor who wrote the book takes you with him on an amazing journey, tracking down these invisible beings called throughout the centuries, elves, fairies, gnomes, they are real, and you can get them to work for you in the corporate structure. Holy smokes. I had never quite considered the fact that I wasn't making it with the elves. I had never thought, even briefly in my lifetime, that perhaps I had been laughing at the gnomes. And all the while, the gnomes were hard at work for Bob Leader. All the while, uh, all the while, the vice president of ABC was a gnome. How did I know this? That MCA, the Music Corporation of America, had the elves working night and day on their side. And who did I have? Me. <laughs> Let's see what else it says. These invisible creatures are but one of the many species that live unseen all around all of us. Some of the others are good. Others, unfortunately, are evil. They have been affecting your life from the day you were born, whether you want them or not. When you contact these evil beings and control them, you enjoy tremendous toast. When you ignore them, you pay the price in misery and failure. Yes, friends... 
It is as simple as that. Send for the booklet now. Ten days, money back, satisfaction. You must be delighted. Results guaranteed. Now, that's enough of that. Holy smokes, I got this, you know, and it must have cost them $500 just for the mailing alone. How, how did I get on that mailing list? <laughs> oh, man, and listen, some of the things these invisible beings can give you, for, for those of you who've been wondering why you haven't been making it, for those of you who think, gee whiz, i got such a fantastic profile and such a beautiful soul, and I, I'm, I'm such a perceptive, magnificent human being, how come... Why is it? Why is it a klutz like David Susskind makes it? And look at you. You're sitting around. You're sitting around in the grocery store there, slicing salami thin. You should be on the way making slicing salami thick. Making it all the way, man. Why sell salami at 15 cents for two slices when you could get $45,000 a week doing it? And you wonder, well, listen what these invisible beings can give you. One, endless streams of money, gold, silver, and jewels. Oh, oh boy. Endless streams. They didn't just say you make it, you know, you got, you know, your credit rating goes up. Endless streams of money, gold, silver, and jewels. All the way. Listen to this one. Radiant, glowing health, and boundless energy and strength in all directions. I don't know what they mean by that. Crying out loud. Listen to this one. The irresistible sex appeal of a movie star. Oh, boy, I've known some movie stars with unbelievable sex appeal. Listen to this one. I mean... Oh, boy. Who can resist Tab Hunter, I ask you? Who, I ask you? Who? Crying out loud. Who can resist Jane Fonda in this day and age? Speaking of irresistible sex appeal and the skinny people, this is WORAM and FM, New York. Amazing psychic powers you can also get, such as telepathy and levitation. Well, I have seen some BPs around here float in the door. And, uh... <laughs> They do seem to have a certain kind of telepathy. Uh, I don't know. Uh, this, this, I think, is an important point you can get from the elves and the fairies. Control over others. The ability to dominate anyone you meet instantly. Just think what that would do in your life. Just that one point alone. The ability to dominate anyone instantly. Let your mind range over that just a second. And also, of course, uh, for those of you who are more serious-minded, these elves also will give you tremendous wisdom and peace of mind and profound spiritual treasures. And the final statement here, and much, much more. Can you think of anything they haven't covered there? Sex, money, riches, control, domination, uh, much, much more so that your life will be a long and happy one and you will swing all the way. Well, now, uh, this... Uh, this is this is something that touches deeply on all of us. You know, do you mind if I do a deepie here? Almost every last one of us feels that we're living star-crossed lives. Somewhere along the line, we L-O-U-S-E-D'd up. Somewhere along the line, we loused up. Now, it's very hard in a day of no responsibility to admit you loused up. So you have to say your mother and father loused up. Else they would have given birth to a much better kid. Uh, you know, or, or you'd have gotten something better from them. Either that or society has loused up. The ridiculous rotten society that you're living in has loused up. And it would have otherwise have understood your beautiful nature and soul, etc., etc., etc. Now, the problem of making it is much more prevalent here in New York than it is in most other places. You know, a guy sitting on the porch 
rocking, not even rocking, just a, a kid, a kid running around and, and, and belting a 45-cent a baseball around the lot out in Cleveland, doesn't know there's a world out there that you can make it in. He really doesn't. You'd be surprised how much of a localized uh, hang-up psychosis that making it is. You know, I came to New York. I've been around. You know, I've been working in different places, and I've been doing shows, and I've been having a great time in radio and TV and one thing and another. And all of a sudden, I found myself in New York, and there was something coming out of the air conditioners. There was something seeping in, some kind of a purple gas in through the, in through the, under the, under the doors, you know, and around the rugs. And every time you turn on the water cooler in the halls, you know, you turn it on, you're getting a drink, and the water comes squirting out and hits you in the nose, and you know the little motor goes running, and it's only saying, make it man, make it man, make it man, go on, away, go on, man, cut him down, kill him. And it wasn't until I got to New York that I realized that making it usually consists of killing other guys. It does not mean do something good. It means uh, somehow it's a kind of chutzpah. It's a kind of, uh, <laughs> you know, and, and I know many a guy who was a playwright, for example. You'd think he would sit around and think about great plays to write. No, he sits around and curses great plays that other guys have written. They look upon playwriting as a fantastic race, a foot race. And uh, I remember one day being in rehearsal. I was in a play that was written by a well-known, hip, modern-type playwright. And it was a downtown old fold. You know, you'd be surprised. I have a long list of off-Broadway credits. And, and so I'm down there, you know, we're working away on this play. And, and this guy's bugged. Oh, he's yelling. The playwright, he's always coming in. He's unhappy. And, you know, because he saw the obvious. He'd written a turkey. And, and as, as we, yeah, as we, you know, the more we worked on this thing, the more turkey-like it became. Until finally, at the end of the week, I was thinking of going to my agent and asking if I could get the cranberry concession on the opening night, you know. And, uh, and here I was the lead in this clam bake, you know, <laughs> and, and, and oh, wow. And my buddy, who, 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 by the way, is now going all the way, it is a big top Broadway Hollywood type actor. We were both, uh, uh, between, between rehearsal sessions, we would both sit in this bar and he says, listen, listen, you get the cranberry thing and I'll handle the salary, okay? <laughs> I said, oh man, wow. And the playwright is bugged every day. He's coming in, he's looking up at this, this fantastic catastrophe that he's created, this, this monster he has given birth to, you know, it's up there on the stage and it's getting worse by the minute. So every 30 seconds they would send him out to write more dialogue and it would come back worse. Which, <laughs> as panic set in, his brain went to sleep. And, and, and as his brain went to sleep, instead of, uh, you know, automatic writing coming out like James Joyce, it was coming out like noise that the typewriters make when they're adjusting the ribbons, you know. It was unbelievable. Well, uh, one day, near the end of this catastrophic period, this is when I suddenly learned something about the great foot race concept of life. I'm up there on the stage. George is up, and a whole bunch of us are running around on the stage. We're trying to trying to make some sense out of this cacophony, you know. And we're up there wrestling around and yelling and hollering, doing, "Hello, my king of horse!" Run back and forth and clatter with the swords, and we're having a fist fight and we're having a duel, you know. And we have the big scene where the chick comes in and all that. Well, in the middle of all this, in came the playwright, and for the first time since uh, since we had started this fiasco, he is unbelievably happy. He comes in, yeah, hi, kid. And, and my, my fellow actor, he's sick. He's going to kill us all. I, 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 does it look like him? Is he going to commit suicide right here in the studio? Is that what's going to happen? Are we going to have a hanging here? 
in the, in the rehearsal hall. Wait, somebody said, you sneak up behind him, and I will keep him, I'll keep his attention from standing in front of him. I'll do my card tricks. All right, Shep, you can run. And he says, the playwright's going, happy days are here again, always with this and the Rudy Toot. And somebody finally says, hey, just, just wait a minute, what, what happened? What is it? You know, are the reviews in? Or are you under the impression we've opened and we were a smash success, which of course would be a pure fantasy? Pure fantasy. What is it? And he says, didn't you hear? And everyone says, what? 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 What happened? He says, didn't you read the reviews of Charlie Charlie's new play? What a bomb! They blasted him! Oh boy, am I so happy! I couldn't figure out, what's this going to do with this catastrophe we were involved with? He was so happy that somebody else had written a bad play and gotten blasted that somehow he felt good. <laughs> I wonder if Mickey Mantle, after having struck out in the third inning, sitting there cackles to himself when he sees Bobby Richardson strike out in the fifth. <laughs> oh, boy, oh, wow, wow, wow. They can't yell at me now. Wow, look at, look at Richardson. Oh, boy, miss it by a foot. Oh, yo, yo, wow. Well, so I realized that there are people who look upon life as a giant foot race. And artists who look upon art as a foot race. It isn't a thing that you create. Uh, here it is, and you pass it out to the world, and it's either good or bad or falls or, or flies on its own basis. It is put into competition with all the other stuff that guys have done. And the more guys that fall flat on their you-know-what, the better off you'll be. Well, I'm not so sure that's true. But it's all part of this this wonderful uh, making it world that uh, that uh, is is really uh, oh you, have you ever there is no more maniacal, no more strange surrealistic feeling than to sit. Now most of us have watched panel shows. Now by panel shows I'm talking about the late night whoopee panel show, the Johnny Carson, Jack Parr, Steve Allen, Merv Griffin. Odd ad finitum, ad nauseum, less crane syndrome. You know, where, where, where lover boy sits in the middle of a fusion named Ava, uh, and, and, uh, and, and talks back and forth with the, you know, you know that scene? Well, now, now this, uh, we all watch them, but you're now talking to a guy who's been on at least 20 of them. I have been on the Parr show, I have been on the Steve Allen show, I've been on the Les Crane show. Let me see, uh, even back before that, I've been on the Gary Moore show, I've been on the Ernie Kovac show. Now, one of the, I wonder whether you are aware of the feeling or the strange, unreal quality that exists on the panel. How would you like to be one of the people there? And Jack looks over to you and says, well, uh, what about you now? Uh, what do you got to say, uh, whoopee, whoopee? Uh, and he turns to you and you look around the panel and you see the, the glazed eyes of four other people who are not only not listening to you, but <laughs> but the minute you get a laugh, you can see little shutters going, oh boy, I'll never be on a show with that rotten guy again. Oh, kill that guy. Oh, hey, 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 watch this one. Hey, Jack, watch this now. <laughs> now immediately they start flicking their ears, hoping to attract the audience's attention away from whoever is actually being really funny or entertaining or engaging. In short, uh, the, the competition between the people on those panels is maniacal. Absolutely maniacal. Like that one night, I, one of the saddest things I've ever looked at, one night I'm sitting on, the, on one of these panels, I don't recall which one it was, I think it was, it was the Parr show, I believe, and I was on the show, 
with with a with a comic, a guy who's who's a well-known or one of those borderline comics. Often, when you get with the really big people, they don't have those problems of insecurity. But the borderline guy, you see, the one who the, the actor or actress who doesn't really act or act but appears on panels. That's a different kind of actor or actress. I can name a dozen of them. The comic who never really comics, but he always comes out for the little two and a half minute on the late night show. That kind of guy. You know, they're, they're always very nervous and very, very angry, and you can see little teeth going and all. And I remember, uh, I, I, some, for some reason, it was one of those nights, I, I happened to, I was feeling very good. I went in and, and uh, something Parr said in the, in the dressing room before to me. We, we got along fine. I always, I always got along great with Parr. Just personally, it was a very funny rapport there. And so the minute that I, I, I walked out and, and Parr said something to me and I said something to him, and uh, we batted it back and forth for about 30 seconds, and the audience were, was right in the palm of our hands. I knew this the instant it started, and we were having a great time. People were laughing. I sat down, and I looked around the panel, and, and Jackson said, oh, here's, uh, over here's Milty Milty, and over here's Manny Manny, and over here's Jackie Jackie, and, of course, you know, uh, Bobby Bobby. And uh, I turned and I looked at this face. It was it was one of those frightening looks I've ever seen in my my my, my life. Here were these two little stainless steel BBs looking at me. These two little BBs that were radiating absolute, unbelievable, dynamic flux of hate. It was like magnetic current coming out right at me. See, and a kind of a pasty face, and I looked at Jack, and Jack sort of looked over, and he sees us, and I looked back, and this guy was sitting on the edge of his chair, waiting somehow to break in, to cut in, to somehow get the attention, somehow stop the, the flow, somehow have people look at him, somehow, somehow, and it got so embarrassing that towards the end of the show, he was going, jumping up and saying, well, I was telling him in Pittsburgh, one, two, I, 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 I. he couldn't even remember what he was going to say, or why he was saying it, he just had to say it, and uh, I, I, I settled back down and let this thing cool along. And it was then that, again, once more reaffirmed in my mind the, the unbelievable drive and fanaticism. It's almost, it borders on religious fanaticism. Uh, have you ever watched these people walk up and down the street with that strange religious fervor around their eyes in Times Square? These people with our American flags back behind their back, you know, and they look down and they they they, they just just they radiate a kind of uh, it isn't dedication it's a, it's a hang up they radiate a kind of maniacal mono uh, concept of the whole world they 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 and they shriek and they shout at people you've seen these people say oh, I see sin yeah it's right you're all sinners all of you and that's this kind of maniacal strange thing well. That same fervor is involved in the fervor of a comic who sees another comic getting a laugh or uh, a panel member who sees that he or she is not, quote, going over. It's, 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 a, it's a thing that could kill. And the guy that was sitting next to me up to that point had been a close friend of mine. I never saw him under these conditions. It's like suddenly combat. Well, there ain't no friends, and the only friend you got in the world is a hole in the ground, and your own hole in the ground. You better get in it. Well, th this 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 side of of this wonderful world of showbiz. I wonder how many people ever see this side of it. They hear about it. They hear about backstabbing agents. You know, they always hear about this. Uh, you know, the Bud Schulberg type. What makes Sammy run? But this is kid stuff compared to what actually happens on this. I have seen. I've been in plays, as a matter of fact 
when one actor resents so much another actor actually getting meaning out of the lines that he or she will do everything he or she can do to prevent this actor from actually even making sense. Uh, even though the, now this is not up something else. It's a it's a kind of maniacal quality. I have seen actors go out on the road, a, a star type actor, who is so furious at the fact that other people around him were even competent that he saw to it that every last competent actor was fired before they got to Broadway. So that by comparison, he shone, he, I mean, he would shine on opening light like a pure jewel among this dross. <laughs> I wonder how many critics know that there are at least a half dozen Shakespearean actors who do not tolerate even competence among their supporting cast on Broadway Shakespearean revivals. Uh, I can, you know, this is a, I've seen this so many times in action, and people wonder, well, why do they have this terrible Polonius, or why do they have that awful Ophelia, or why do they... Is this a simple answer? <laughs> it's a very simple answer. Uh, it's easy to be Mickey Mantle when you're playing over in the Teaneck Little League. Uh, it ain't so easy when you're playing in Yankee Stadium. And uh, on one hand, you've got Ellie Howard, and on the other hand, you've got Bobby Richardson, you know, who can swing the bat, too. And so, so the, the problem is multiplied by this, and uh, this, this curse in the theater I don't suppose is ever talked about. But the drive to make it is one of the major... I wonder how many people have ever noticed this little passing problem, which I've seen in many organizations, uh, industrial and or communication industry areas. Uh, I have seen many a copywriter in many a big ad agency systematically get rid of talented people who come up because they challenge him. They literally challenge him that you can be too good. You arrive on the scene, you think, gee, what they want is a good copywriter. You write a good piece of copy, and you're out, and you're you-know-what. You're slid right down the chute, and you wonder why. Uh, so, so mediocrity, uh, in a sense, is a very safe thing to have. You know, uh, curious about uh, education in, in life. Uh, I wonder, I wonder uh, how many of us, we grow, and as we live in, in life, I wonder at what point do we stop learning how life actually operates as opposed to how life should operate theoretically in our dreams and our ideals and our fantasies. Uh, I wonder how many people really seriously believe that talent will out. I mean, how, how many people honestly really believe that? I wonder how many people honestly, truly, really honestly believe that if uh, you have a good product, it will sell just because you have a good product. I wonder how many people really believe that. I wonder how many people really believe that ultimately honesty is the best policy. <laughs> you know, we all say these things. I wonder how many people actually believe it, really believe it. Uh, and I don't know about the, you know, how many of us do, but you know, it's curious when, when you, when you uh, learn life's little indelible lessons. Uh, I wonder, I wonder, I, I don't think I've ever told you... Uh, one of the great indelible lessons I learned one time. You know, I, I'm surrounded by all kinds of... Uh, we are all surrounded by uh, theoretical idealists. Uh, these are people who, uh, theoretically, would give their lives or their substance or whatever it might be for any good cause that's around, providing it's abstract enough, uh, providing, <laughs> providing that they're not called upon to do it. Uh, and that's when you begin to separate the men from the boys. I'll never forget when I'm, I'm, I'm just a kid. I, I, I don't think I've ever told this. So one of the great 
educational moments in my whole uh, lexicon of educational moments, this was really an un uh, unforgettable moment, is the time I'm this kid. This might be interesting to you because you're just starting out in this racket. I'm this kid, see, and I'm in this. Uh, I'm I'm going to school and. And I'm very, very wonderfully innocent. You know, I, I would love to be wonderfully innocent just once again. You know, to look out at the world and say, gee, balloon fairies are all going to come out and help us. You know, <laughs> at, at the, gee, you know, uh, gee, I heard, I heard that wonderful folk singer sing about freedom. You know, I, he really does believe in all that stuff. Isn't that wonderful? Uh, I wish I could believe that, gee, I saw that girl lead the revolt. And uh, at Berkeley or wherever it might be, isn't it wonderful that she's so selfless and that she really is wherever the downtrodden are and that's all she's worrying about? You know, <laughs> I wish I had that that wonderful open kind of uh, that open kind of dim-wittedness, which uh, often is called uh, youthful innocence. Uh, it's a it's a it's a wonderful. It's like it's like suddenly being born in the jungle, and you really believe that you're where the candy mountains are. You really believe somehow that lemon drops do grow from the trees, and that peppermint sticks are for the ha asking, and you know it's that rock candy mountain concept that that wonderful old hobo song, which reminds me we have uh, Pujol with us, uh, and uh, for those of you who are looking for a decent piece of transportation machinery, I would suggest you look up the Pujol, uh, the 404 and the 403. And I'm sure that you've seen ads in the New Yorker. I'm sure you've seen ads in all the major magazines about it. But uh, the only way to really experience an automobile is to go and sit in it and drive it around. And I, sus uh, I suspect that many people buy things from ads, which is a terrible thing to do. And for those of you who have never driven or sat in or even looked at a Peugeot, I suggest you go see it at 2 East 46 here in Manhattan. It's an excellent French car. It comes with a sliding roof. Uh, by the way, wh I wonder why they don't do this more often on American cars. That sliding roof panel is a great idea. Have you ever had one? You know, the little roof panel, that little metal panel that slides back on a sedan, it's a great thing. But yet, uh, we just don't do it in America, uh, the great sun-loving Americans. But nevertheless, this is the Peugeot at 2 East 4 or 6. All right, you want to hear the story of... of uh, the, the, get, get him, get, he, he was listening because I think he wants to know. <laughs> now I want to finish this story. I'm this kid, see, and I get a job. You're going to hear one of the great moments. And, and this is the side of the industry you never hear about, and most of us, because you know I suspect that most people go through their lives and they're followers. Most people are passive about life. And they'll see a, uh, they'll see a petition that will come around, and they'll either sign it or won't sign it. But not many guys start petitions. Uh, <laughs> you know, there's a big difference. Uh, they'll vote for a politician or they'll vote against them. Not many guys get up on a soapbox and say, now, if I get elected, here's what I propose to do. Have you noticed the passive politician is becoming very much in vogue? One of our more attractive candidates for the mayoralty race here in New York is a totally passive candidate. He just kind of is for good things. And uh, he's for nice smiles and and uh, friendly days on the beach, you know, that kind of thing. And uh, this, in a sense, I think, will gain more votes among the passive people, by the way, than a more active candidate or a person who really does stand for things or doesn't stand for things. Uh, also, you've got to remember, too, that, that another popular candidate today is the, is the implied candidate. 
the candidate who implies he f he's for all good things, but never really spells them out. Because today's good thing may be tomorrow's evil. So <laughs> he doesn't really say how, what really good things he's for or against. No, very, very subtle problem there. Now, now, I'm, 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 I'm uh, unfortunately one of these guys who all of his life have been for one reason or another, and nobody, and this is no value judgment, you don't, you don't just say uh, this is because this guy's a good guy or talented or one thing or another. It's the way you're built that can say how and why a guy is created to be a follower or a guy is created to be up on the stage uh, doing it. Most people are born to be in the audience. And so I suspect that they don't understand many of the lessons that the guy who gets up on the stage learns from the hard reality of being on the scene. That's a big difference. Uh, that the writer who constantly writes about sex, I am quite sure, uh, has not been on the battlefront very often. <laughs> really. It's an, it's an imaginary scene he goes through. And I've known too many writers who have taken this as their theme, and I say, what, of all things for you to write about, Chucky? This is the last thing I could, you know, <laughs> well, what am I? Uh, so uh, uh, this is a, uh, more and more guys who, who, uh, who basically uh, are anti the other sex write about the evils of marriage, which is a fascinating twist. Uh, but that's, that's beside the point. But it's all still part of the same thing. And so, uh, from the very earliest age, now why, I don't know, I found myself in the middle of things. Not because I, I, I deliberately went there, but because it was like a cork. I drifted. There I was, you know, and then the next thing I know, I'm up on the stage, and everyone's saying, All right, Chef, be funny! Just once, I would love to be sitting back 485 rows back, waiting for somebody else. <laughs> I just love it. Well, nevertheless, you have no idea how great it is to go to a show. You know, I do this this two-hour show in front of a, the limelight. You have no idea how great it is just to go to some place and just be a klutz and say, all right, smart guy, be funny. But the trouble is that when I try to do that, I sit in the audience and I find myself empathizing with that guy up there, you see, because I go through it, I know, you know, and every minute he dies, I die. Or any little tiny triumph he has, I feel, oh boy, wow, we got him that time, didn't we, Charlie? Oh, wow, all right, come on, I'll follow it up, watch your timing, Dad, easy now, you know, now slow up, slow up, now don't press, oh, you're pressing, oh, there it goes, out the window, oh, wow, and then I look around, I hear people going, <coughs> I want to run up on the stage and somehow help them, you know. But uh, that's, that's, uh, that's a problem that's a personal technical problem and, and a professional one. But one time when I'm this, I'm this kid, see, and uh, I'm, I'm just out of the Army, and uh, the world is always sunny, and uh, <laughs> it's always blue skies, and I have signed up to go to, to the university, uh, GI Bill of Rights, that whole scene, you know, oh, wow, the whole scene is big and great, and I'm 400 feet tall, I'm walking around the streets, and I get this job at this radio station. Now, I, I, I'm, you know, there I am, you see, and I, I, can, uh, I, I want to work for a while before I go into school. I want to get my feet on the ground, that kind of scene, you know. So I get the job in this radio station, and it's in a big city, a major city, and they make a lot of money, this radio station. Boy, they're turning it in, coining it, hand over fist. And I get the job, and I am paid a cool 1750 a week. Now, this is post-war. Now, get this, Dad, post-war. This is not uh, in the year 1897. 
So I'm getting 1750 a week, and I'm looking around, and I begin to see that all the people on the staff, with two or three exceptions, like the owner's brother-in-law, who was million every five minutes, and, and his son-in-law, who was also making a million every five minutes, all the rest of us are working for ridiculous salaries. And as a matter of fact, if I tell you the truth about it, you wouldn't believe it, that one girl who was like the Pauline Fredericks on this station, she did news and interviews and all this kind of stuff, it's hard to believe in the 20th century she was getting car fare. They were, and she had a master's degree from Northwestern, that kind of thing, in dramatic arts and so on. They were paying her car fare, literally car fare. They were giving her 42 cents a day so that she could go from her home to the station and back again. Nothing else. Well, I said, gee, that's terrible, Barbara. You mean you've been here, you work seven days a week and you're getting car fare and doing these commercials and all that? She says, yes, it's, it's, Sharon, it's, it's, I've been doing it a year, and you know, I haven't eaten since last January. And uh, it's terrible. So I see all these poor guys around me. Their ribs are sticking out. One guy's got vulcanizing patches on his, on his uh, sport coach, you know. And I'm beginning to feel sorry for this whole scene. So one day, I, and I'm making more money than anybody. I'm the only guy who's got any kind of experience. He's like giving me now $20 a week. And I'm the chief announcer at this point, and this has gone on for almost a year. So I called them all in the studio one day and I said, listen, there's only one thing we can do. We gotta get union, we gotta get a union in here, that's all. No problem. I mean, you know, this is just the union, we gotta get a union. And they said, really? And I said, yeah. Holy smokes, do you think we could? Do you think we could? Oh, I'd die for that, I'll die all the way for that. Please, please. I said, all right, be, be of good cheer. I'll go in and talk to the union. And so 20 minutes later, the guy is saying to me at the union, All right, glad to hear you, son. That's what we need, a good organizer there. Now, uh, we'll send a, a special delivery letter to the management informing them that we are going to have an NLRP election and that uh, you have nominated after as your, uh, your bargaining agent and that we'll take care of it from there. Well, they sent the letter and three days later, they had the election. All 15 of us voted for the union, whether we were going to have the union or not. There were 14 votes against the union and one vote for it. One guy got fired and all the rest, as far as I know, are still working for car fare. <laughs> well, I walked out into the sunshine with the big sun hanging over me. And the rain is somewhere off over the lakes, way over Michigan or Canada. And I can hear the sound of off-stage thunder. And things began to come clearer and clearer to me. <laughs> you want to hear another one like that? Oh, I can tell you stories on end about this wonderful business. Yes, kid. Oh, oh, by the way, who was? Who did you say was a freak? Lou? Oh, he's a freak, huh? All right. Well, that's Lou's problem. We all have our problems. 